Hi, and welcome to Alder Pod number 12. This is chapter 10 of the Alder's Gate, Fiddles in the Dark. For the last day, nearly every thought in Emery's mind had been about Cora Gray. Her name itself was melodious, a sweet confluence of vowels and consonant sounds inspiring enough to be the title of a song. And just the thought of it, the realization that he could think about music again, a prospect he hadn't considered after seeing and hearing what had gone on in Barnett, was a mighty load off of his soul. And it was all on account of her. Though he had no idea what she looked like, it didn't seem to matter. It was all in her voice, in her accent, in the expressions she made, and the stories she told him. He pieced together by her words, by the music of the timbre of her voice. At times, she was very passionate, bordering on stubborn, mostly due to her current incarceration or the whereabouts of her friends and family. When she was angry, her voice lowered and crackled slightly, almost as if it was electric, like a little bit of lightning. When she was invested in something, a story usually, her voice slipped softer, her accent more pronounced, and she often sighed a bit, as if she were completely content. Emery had never in all of his life spent so much time with a woman, let alone one as loquacious. He found it no small wonder that, of all the women on Arena, he found himself with Cora, who was fascinated with tales of chivalry, of romance. It was as if she were put there specifically for him, by some surprisingly benevolent god, as a harbor in his stormy existence. He told her stories. He did not sing them. Well, first, he had no accompaniment, and though he had a perfect ear, he still lived in the constant fear that somehow, in some way, he would let loose part of that melody, part of the chord that the dead had sung to him in Barnett, and he could not risk that, fearing it might hurt Cora. And in between the stories he told, he shared with her, mostly, what had happened in Barnett and how, mysteriously, he had ended up in the Nithings. The details were vague to him, and he told her what he could, that he had fallen asleep in a deep cleft in the rock some miles north of Barnett, and then had fallen somehow. He had been in complete darkness, but he felt around and found that his fiddle was in its case, and his guitar miraculously had suffered only a slight indentation at the base of the body, which he would felt with his fingers. But when the guitar fell, the strings did not engage. Emery had tied a piece of cloth under the strings by the soundboard to ensure that no mistake happened again. As tired as he had been, terror brought a surprising clarity to him. He had wandered in the dark for time out of mind, half dreaming, the world silent around him, only the air moving. He had been very lost. But then there had been light, bright green light blinding him at first, He'd fallen again, and hands were everywhere, pressing him but not hurting him. And then he closed his eyes and fell asleep because, well, he couldn't sort out that part. He hadn't been hit. He hadn't been stuck with a needle. He'd simply drifted off to sleep because he couldn't imagine anything else to do. It had felt like he'd had no choice. Three days passed, and one sip came giving him food and left three times a day, Emery wallowed in despair and thought not a few times about creative ways he might end his own life, but alas, nothing seemed enough. And though he tried a hunger strike, 
It lasted all of but one meal. The food, as strange as it was, was enticing in his tired state. At least, he thought, it was quiet here. And there was no death. He had quite nearly come to the conclusion that he'd simply lost his senses altogether, that he had just gone mad and was now living in a world fabricated from his darkest nightmares and strange tales from barding school, when they brought Cora in. He hadn't seen her, but he had heard the sibs talking in harsh whispers to one another, likely to ensure that he didn't hear. They had grilled him about her, but he had remained adamant. He knew no such girl, nor did he know of her friends. He was just a bard, he insisted, and he ought to be let out by any code of conduct. And now it was the third day since Cora had arrived. The two of them slept when the lights dimmed and awoke every morning, presumably, when Ezra arrived for their first meal. Once their meals were finished, they would sit, side by side, by the chink in the wall, and Emery would begin telling stories. He would not stop until there was either sure that Cora had fallen asleep or she'd asked him to, and so far he had not been asked to stop. Though his voice was rough from all the conversation, it was nonetheless with joy that he continued. "'Isn't there a tale about Sir Rover in the Nithings?' asked Cora just as Emery had finished the tale of Sir Gawain of Fendley and the Witch of Werelick Wood. It was one of the, his favorites as it took place on his very own island and made him think of home. Emery thought a moment, trying to separate the tale from the exhaustive catalogue he had in his mind. Rover, Rover, key of G minor with the beginning notes, then that lovely interval. He closed his eyes and imagined the notes as if written on paper, then picked out the melody note by note. It was only then that the contents of the story made themselves known to him, unfolding like a rose. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right, he said to her, softly, amazed that she had such a mind for these tales. She had suggested at least a dozen so far, many of which were far from traditional or part of the standard canon. It's an odd tale, though, dating back some two hundred years at least. I don't think it's a continental tale, truth be told. I believe Sir Rover was originally Sir Relvere, Adapted from the Ardesian, we inherited him, you could say, likely during the reign of Queen Helene II, who opened up the trade routes between the continent and Ardesia. Your knowledge of these stories never ceased to amaze me, Emery. I seem to have acquired my own personal bard, said Cora. She almost laughed, but Emery couldn't fault her. It was a dismal place. Well, Dunlee has that effect on a person. I was at the Academy for, well, almost two decades, Emery admitted. He didn't add that he was, as well, top of his class in marks, not just in theory, but in musical history as well. Two decades, Cora asked. How old are you, then? Twenty-seven? asked Emery, unsure of himself. He tried to count back the years, but came up missing a few. I'm not sure. I was sent off when I was eight, I think. Eight years old? Your family must have missed you terribly, she said softly. No, no, not at all. I'm the youngest of six boys, and far from the most beloved. Although I spent summers at home, I was treated no different. My parents were clothing merchants, middling alder class, but at any rate, we were talking about Sir Rover. Yes, I was going to ask. Doesn't he go traveling to the Nithings to find a wife? asked Cora, her tone taking on a quizzical tone. She was never sure of herself, he could tell, and when she suggested ideas to him, it was always as if she were certain that she'd be proved wrong with his response. But so far, she had been correct on nearly every account. She might have made a good bard, Emery thought. I believe he does, albeit the wife discovery happens along the way. 
Rover travels into the hell of Earth in search of the lamps of Warding, I believe, the very same that was lost by Sir Grumain de Belvie in that tale I mentioned early this morning, and then finds a golden ladder woven out of hair. He climbs it, and at the top is a woman, a Nithings woman, the tale says, who has rescued him out of the hell of Earth, he said, pausing. He cleared his throat, recalling that the tale was one of the more erotic tales he knew, not surprising considering its Ardesian background. They fall quite in love, I believe, he added. Cora fell silent a moment, and he could hear her shuffling on the other side of the wall. Yes, well, we've certainly proved that one to be false. A woman in the knitting seems laughable. Perhaps, said Emery, but I suppose that finding a real knitting is all, well, puts a perspective on things. The way things truly are don't always come in the tales. They're like pictures, copied over and over. Every time they're drawn, something small has changed, even if it's barely noticeable. But over time, the picture has changed dramatically. Remarkable, said Cora. Only, it still sounds quite mad to think that we're sitting here in the knittings waiting for the sibs. Mrs. Dunwoody next door used to tell me, Don't misbehave, Cora, or the sibs will come and take you away to the knittings. You don't, you don't suppose there's a grain of truth in that, do you? Emery wondered. It was a good point. Well... We don't know how many sibs there are down here, and I certainly don't understand what they are. But aside from, well, the obvious, Ez, for instance, doesn't seem that different from you or me. But perhaps Sir Rover's mistress was not a mistress at all, but just, well, one of these sibs. It was the truest of love, Cora said. Or so says the tale I remember, a love so pure that it made the trees bend closer to them when they were walking together in the wood above. All creation marveled at it. Hardly seems possible, though, if it wasn't between a man and a woman. I don't suppose so, no, admitted Emery, feeling decidedly uncomfortable with that thought. The idea of being neither man nor woman unsettled him. He continued. They say when Rolver died, his wife died too, her golden hair falling over her head like a curtain as she mourned him there, above his grave. She turned into a willow tree, the weeping willow. A truer love the world may never have seen. Emery's favorite tales were never their romances, but he couldn't deny seeing something of their beauty here, talking to Cora. Have you ever been in love, Emery? His stomach did a somersault, and he tried to take a deep breath before responding. Bards, we don't, he tried, and then stuttered to a stop. Technically speaking, Cora, bards aren't allowed such privileges. It's believed that a bard's gifts are severely compromised should they descend into the complications of love. Cora laughed a little bitterly. And it's a rather convenient rule, considering most bonds are older class, isn't that right? On the whole, I suppose it's the majority of us, he replied. So in order to prevent you from laying claim to a woman, scarce as we are, they make up some knob-headed myth. How charming. Decisions must be made, Emery said at last. I imagine you don't quite understand being from a family of girls, but we boys have little choice if we're to be anything but first in line. Only one of my brothers is married, and his wife bears a striking resemblance to Moorish pygmy cows, and is as promiscuous as an Ardesian. So if it takes a knob-headed myth rather than a royal decree, it's fine with me. She didn't respond, and the silence nodded him. Rather than wallow in it, though, he continued, Well, you were perfectly happy with Sir Rolver's myth. What's wrong with this one? And I happen to think there is much truth to be said in the matter. Though we bards write plenty of love songs, Imagine the difficulty one would have if their every thought was centered around one person. Only one. 
How could the bard create then? We'd be worthless. How many times could you recast the rose? Then he added for emphasis, We take our craft very seriously, you know. I see, she said after a pause. I just can't very well understand how you could prevent yourself from falling in love. It seems quite odd to me. I suppose, he conceded, wondering what he would do should he ever come face to face with this young woman. He took a deep breath and asked, And you? You? Have you ever been, you know, well, in love? She asked. She sighed, waited. He could almost hear her thinking. I think so. Still am, likely. But I doubt I'll ever see him again. Your friend, then. The one you talked about. The blacksmith's boy. Yes, said Cora, with one defeated note. There was so much sadness in the sound of her voice that had Emery not been so jealous of the boy, he would have wept himself. But, as you said, a blacksmith's boy. And me, an alder daughter. And now? Well... I imagine he's been enlisted with the Order of the Oak, and our paths are unlikely to cross again, even if I ever do get out of here. We will get you out, Cora. We will. We can't very well sing our way out of it, she said. Then quickly, as if she were sorry for speaking so harshly, I'm sorry, Emery, but I'm tired. I think I need to sleep. Talking of home has made me very sad. Emery frowned, staring at the chink in the wall, wishing his hands were stronger. He would tear down the wall if he could. I'll be here when you wake. There were plenty of things to be frightened of in the dark, but nothing scared Emery so much as the idea of having more nightmares. In his nightmares, he relived Barnett again and again, heard the cord, felt it rip through him, tear him apart. He would fight off sleep for as long as he could, composing little melodies, silently, always silently, as far away from the court as he could, but he would always lose the battle and fall asleep. Then came the cord, the black cord of death. He had just been in the dream and woke screaming. As he crossed from sleep to waking, the scream quieted, and he simply moaned, willing his heavy limbs to move, to make contact with the corporal world again, to assure him that the dream was not lingering long. He feared he'd awoken Cora, but she seemed silent. Surely if his scream had been loud enough, she'd have asked after him. But no, she was quiet. The sudden fear seized him that perhaps Cora herself had been a dream, a figment, and he had just once again lost the ability to decipher the nightmares from his waking life. Had it been one long dream? Cora, he asked. Cora, are you all right? I, I thought I heard something. I... It was then that Emery realized someone was standing at the front of his cell, staring at him. He scrambled to stand against the back wall of his cell, trembling from head to toe until he realized who it must be. The light above was dim, casting a green glow on her shift and deepening the shadows on her face. Cora, how did you... His heart was pounding, his stomach roiling with fear... How had she freed himself? Or was this simply part of the dream, too? Shh, she warned, holding up a cautionary finger. Her voice was low, commanding. Stay where you are. She was trembling. He could see that from where he stood. She squinted into the cell, looking at his face, and he remembered that she usually wore spectacles. These, too, had been taken. 
The shift she wore looked incandescent, and it fluttered slightly about her bare leg in the drafts and currents of the cave. He couldn't exactly see the details of her face, but he could make out a high brow and long, wavy hair falling down over her shoulders. Cora's hand came up, and she grasped the heavy mechanism at the front door of Emery's cell. Her white fingers coiled around the latch, both metal and stone. It was an intriguing design. Even Emery could appreciate that, but impenetrable. From what he had seen, Ez had to insert two separate keys to open the door, and the grinding that ensued led him to believe the actual mechanism for the door was hidden below, somewhere below them. He imagined it was some sort of giant stone weight. But there was a clank and a snap, and Emery watched as Cora took a deep breath. She inhaled once, and then exhaled sharply. Then she let out a cry and fell backwards as if someone had kicked out her legs from underneath her, her head hitting the ground with a thud. The door, which had until a few moments ago been locked securely between two of the stalagmites, swung open on its hinges as if pushed by an invisible hand. Cora! he screamed. In the ensuing panic, Emery tripped over his own feet and skidded across the length of the stone floor. His chin connected with the ground, and he bit down into his cheek, tasting blood. Stunned, he scrambled back to his stand and went to her. She was ashen, but that could have been a trick of the light. Nothing looked good under the green glow of the knittings. He cradled her in his hands, wiping her brow gently, pushing back the curls at her forehead. God, she was so beautiful, so much more beautiful than he'd even imagined. He wanted to weep and to smile. He had never held a woman, not tenderly, not like this. He had dreamed he had, but now, looking down into her face, he felt a serene sense of completion. But no, no. He had to fight that off, whatever it meant. She was not well. He leaned down and could feel her breath, light and regular as a child's. He was crying now, tears running down his filthy cheeks and splashing into her hair. What could he do? He felt so weak. He did the only thing he thought he could do. He picked her up, slowly at first, and then, once balanced, started to wake his way down a long, dark hallway. In his exhausted state, he was already tiring and wondered giddily if he would collapse too. Would he turn into a weeping willow then? Just as he thought he could walk no longer, the door at the end of the hall ground open and bright, clear light flooded the hallway. Emery squinted as the light poured in, burning his eyes. The tears did not make it any better. Figures, many figures, approached now, all dressed in white, various shapes and sizes, all with black or white hair. He stared at them as they stumbled as he stumbled to his knees, cradling Cora to him. I can't, he was trying to say. What's gone on here? asked a deep voice. Emery? It was Ez. Someone's tripped the switch. What? She needs a doctor, Emery managed. Please, can't you do something? There were murmurs, and Emery could see heightened movement in the crowd, but the light was bad and tears obscured most of his vision. Please, Emery croaked, trying to protect her as white hands reached down, pulling him away. And then the command came again, and he could not resist. Sleep, Emery. Sleep. Emery, said a voice. Emery Roy, wake up. And he did. 
It was not from a nightmare, but from a peaceful sleep that Emery opened his eyes and blinked. The air was clean and fresh, smelling slightly of something both sweet and spicy. He was sitting in a chair. Drowsy, he took in the lay of the room. He was sitting in a soft white chair, facing someone behind a desk. It was a sip. Hale was older, but nearly as tall as he was himself, he expected. Hale's hair was white and plaited neatly down one side, tied with a scarlet piece of string. In Hale's black eyes was a deep well of wisdom and sadness, too. Looking at Hayon immediately, Emery felt all his worries were insignificant in the wake of what Hea had seen. Hea was dressed in a similar manner to Ez, with a white leather jacket buttoned up to the collar with silver buttons. But Hea also wore the equivalent of a skirt or some sort of kilt with a red and gold damask pattern. As Hea moved Hea's hand, Emery saw the dark lines of tattoos there, a stag with proud antlers running around Hea's wrist and up Hea's arm. "'Welcome to my den,' said the Sib. "'I regret we could not make more formal introductions earlier, but seeing as the climate has changed significantly, as the saying goes, we can meet at last face to face.' "'Climate?' echoed Emery, his voice wobbly at best. He coughed, then shivered, looking around the room. A far departure from the cell he'd inhabited for the better part of a week— its high-pitched ceiling reached at least fifteen feet and was slitted with long, narrow windows. Light was provided by a series of gas lamps dispersed about the room, and plants grew at the base of the walls, but they were not the sort of plants he was familiar with. These all looked to be some variation on mushrooms, but larger and of a wide variety of color and shape. There were tall spiral ones in magenta hue, short, stout, circular ones red as apples, and more besides in greens and violets, ochres and azures. But most impressively, the walls of the room behind the Sib's desk were lined with shelves, each set with an array of moving objects, ticking objects, whirring objects. He had no idea what they were for, but the collective music from them was hypnotizing. Emery continued to stare about the room, noting the alien beauty of the place. The sheer perfection of line and arc was inspiring. He all but forgot what he had been brought here for. Emery? Yes, I'm sorry. I'm a little disoriented, he admitted, looking again to the older Sib. There were others in the room, too, that he had not noticed until now, but they stood silent, behind him and to the side of him, as if waiting for him to do something unusual. My friend, she... There was a tea set between the two of them, which realized the bard for the first time was the source of the sweet, spicy smell. Rivulets of steam rose and twirled about one another, and the sib went to work pouring two cups of it. Hea slid one to Emery before saying, Miss Gray will be fine. We have our physicians looking after her, but I expect after some good sleep and some tending to the gash in her head, she'll be fine. Emery glanced down at his depressingly decrepit tunic. There was dried blood crusted there. Cora's blood. Was I asleep? he asked dumbly. You passed out, said the sib, tilting his head to the side, measuring the bard. You'd walked nearly the entire passage with Miss Gray in tow, and uh, no doubt in a state of late exhaustion, too. Ezra reported you'd hardly slept, 
So I had you brought here, to my office. It's safe? Emery asked. It's safe here? The Sib smiled knowingly, and Emery felt suddenly quite young and stupid. Because I am Nesme, and this is the very heart of the Nithings, where all the decisions are made, and all of our people come to see justice done. It's the only place I could guarantee your safety. It's a haven of sorts, a kind of sanctuary. Nesme then raised Hare's hands and clapped three times. The remaining sibs bowed one by one and then exited, closing an imposing-looking look- brass and iron-latched door behind them. In their absence, the silence mounted. We have much to talk about, but I'm afraid I must prioritize, said the sib, taking a sip of tea. I hope I can show you, in time, that the decision to put you in the dungeon was not my making, but rather that of the people. It was a majority vote. A majority? asked Emery. A vote? You mean you haven't got a queen or a parliament here? We are the parliament. All of us, Esme said softly. Only I hope, you could say, guide the people in the right direction. And until recently, that is, most of our decisions had to do with when to plant various crops or how much funding to send the engineers' guild. Hardly as complicated as what to do with you, Emery. And then, with Cora's appearance, and not to mention the most recent events, we've experienced a bit of mass panic here, to say the truth. Emery had no mind as to what to say, so he merely stared at Nesme and nodded. So, the Parliament decided to put me in the dungeon, he asked finally. Yes. And now? The decision has been rescinded, on account of recent, uh, occurrences. Before Emery could finish, Nesme asked, Do you believe in prophecies, Emery? The question struck Emery as undeniably odd, but then everything about this place was odd. From his sudden incarceration to the even more sudden freedom, his thoughts were coming slower to him than he wanted, as if he'd had too much wine. As a matter of practice, no, Emery said. As a matter of interest, yes. Prophecy is something bards study at length, though I hold little credence to their powers myself. Fascinating from a historical standpoint, but... You suffer above, because our mothers cannot birth more girl children, said Nesme. And it's because, instead of girls, many women carry sibs, like me, like Ez, like the other 6,257 currently in this part of the Nithings. So you... We're your siblings, Emery, each and every one of us, from every class, every country, the lost, the dispossessed, the rejected, and we are very much part of prophecy, prophecy since the Great Collision. Emery had thought that Nesme was wise, but was now detecting something odd in Hea's voice, a tinge of zealotry, perhaps an edge of madness. He wasn't certain, but he was suddenly quite warm around the collar. More tea was not the ideal drink. He sighed, looking down at his filthy hands. There was a residue of blood and dirt underneath his fingernails, and his skin was peeling by his palms, gray and gritty. If his hands were in such a state, he could only imagine what the rest of him must look like. And you are part of the prophecy too, said Nesme, nodding. Does that surprise you? To be honest, lately everything surprises me. And although prophecies are not my specialty, I try to balance them as much as possible within the realm of my own understanding. It's detrimental to start chasing prophecies, as I'm sure you can well imagine. 
over time they become rather self-fulfilling. I know when you came here, you were running from something. Emery looked up quickly, narrowing his eyes at the sib. How would you know? Nesme smiled, only slightly, then shook his head. I don't think you've run from it completely yet, but I do not believe you to be a bad man. No, I do not believe you're a threat to my people. But because of your affiliations with Cora Gray, things have changed a bit. You notice she managed to break the device that withheld her and you in our dungeons. We have foreseen this, and it has come to pass. Our prophecies indicate that we are to conduct you two both to safety, as well as Cora's friends. You have her friends? They're safe. They are among our allies. Cora was not. It will be clearer for you when you speak with them, I imagine. But you may walk out of my den, when you wish, and visit Cora, and find yourself some rest before departing. And that's it? he asked, astonished. And what would have happened if she hadn't broke the latch, hadn't freed us? Nesme frowned. You would likely have been put to death. We do not take kindly to invaders here, Emery. Not one bit. But, as it is, this gift is intended for you. With that cryptic response, Nesme stood and went to the shelves behind Hea's chair. Hea stood a moment, simply gazing at the variety of instruments perched there, Hea's shoulders rising and falling with breath, and Hea's hands clasped behind Hea's back. Emery watched, wondering if the Sib had forgotten about him entirely. It seemed a possibility. Considering what he'd been through the last few days, he wasn't ready to make up his opinion regarding the sanity of the Sibs as a people quite yet. Nesme then reached out Hea's hand and took an object off the shelf that resided next to a blue-jeweled bird that, until that moment, had been chirping rather longingly, its mechanical warble surprisingly sweet, but just so slightly tinny. And a bit flat, thought Emery. Hush, all, said Nesme, and everything quieted. The ticking stopped, the whirring wound down. All of the springs and coils, gears and cogs, they all came to a stop. How did you... asked Emery, but the sib shook Hea's head. Nesme turned, cradling a small white object in the palm of Hea's hand. Here, said the sib, holding it out to Emery. Take it. The object fell into Emery's hands with a soft thud. It was so pristine and white that Emery's initial reaction was one of horror. Surely he would sully it with his dirty hands. What it was, though, Emery could not tell. Certainly it held none of the mechanical hallmarks of the rest of the curiosities on Nesme's shelf. For all the intents and purposes, it looked like a scallop shell that had been worn completely smooth. The end was flared and the edges round. It weighed slightly less than a rock of that size would. He wondered what it was, and what it was made out of. What do I do with it? he asked. Nesme shrugged and sat back down opposite him. Turning it over in his hand, Emery found that there were three holes underneath it, and one at the flared end, oblong. The three holes were in a row, one after another. It's some sort of flute, I think, he said half to himself, though I can't imagine it has much range with such a limited combination. He lifted the instrument up to his lips, and then licked them, then placed it to his mouth. He blew once, experimentally, tasting clay and something tangy. Like the sea. It really did taste like a seashell. 
At first, it made no sound, and Henry was starting to worry in his sleep-deprived state if he'd really gone mad. He couldn't very well play an instrument he'd never seen before. Was this a test? Did Nesme really expect him to play it? And what would it prove anyway? A glance at Nesme and Emery tried again, this time with his fingers over the holes. He was more successful then, the ensuing whistle low and elegant, a sweet sound much louder than he had anticipated. He held it out and examined it again, then let his fingers flutter over the sound holes. It was a habit he'd always done with wind instruments. He let his fingers tell him the story of what to do. A few moments later, he was playing a soft melody. He couldn't be sure what notes he was playing, but he had a feeling it was in some odd scale, E-flat or some such. The result was an unexpectedly haunting sound, more round than the tone of a flute or a recorder. For the space of about a tick or so, Emery forgot where he was. He forgot the pain in his body, the aching weariness behind his eyes, the longing he felt elsewhere, the fear in his heart. All he heard was the mounting beauty of the instrument's tone, mingling in the air, twirling and rising in ecstasy and revelry. It was, he thought, the most beautiful song he had ever written, and had been entirely unconscious. Good, then, said Nesme, and Emery stumbled to a stop, dropping the instrument from his lips and staring ahead half entranced. That was marvelous. You do have quite a talent, I see. A true bard. Emery blushed at the flattery and looked down at the instrument. What is it? I believe it was called an Ukrix. It's ancient. I believe it dates from before the Great Collision, from one of the minor islands. You can keep it, though. I've never had much of an ear for music, and it's right that it's in the hands of a bard. I've never heard of an Ukrix, Emery said, surprised that he hadn't read about it in Dunley. But, he reflected, stranger things had happened of late. Well, no matter. Come now, Emery. You look as weary as I feel. Years later, Emery still couldn't put the sheer grandeur of the knittings into words. He would always begin mistakenly with a simile. It was like, but it was like nothing. He had never seen anything like it, and its beauty was at once strange and frightening. Emerging from Nesme's abode, Emery found himself now at the top of a flight of stairs with a sudden understanding of the grandeur of the place. The Nithings itself was an enormous city underground, carved into a huge cavern hundreds of paces up. The cavern rose higher than Hartley Castle, pinpricks of light streaming down from the ceiling in silvery shafts that illuminated patches of green grass here and there. Or, as in the case of the building he was currently staring at, the light bathed the side of one of the white buildings, refracting and turning the sides into a, sides into a pearlescent glow. From what Emery could tell with a first glance, the majority of the buildings in the Nithings were carved out of this remarkable stone, a color and texture somewhere between sandstone and marble. There were streaks of gold or black in some of the structures, but for the most part it was glimmering white and flawless. The style was like unlike anything he'd encountered, not the slim, elegant design of the Moorish homes and mansions he'd seen as a child, nor the bulky, imposing continental style. The harmonizing characteristic other than the material seemed to be one thing, curves. Like the inside of Nesme's home, the design flourished on simplicity. There were no cornices or flourishes, no carvings or borders. All were smooth lines and arches, narrow windows here and there, and flashes of bright red curtains in the windows. There was another thing, too. Steam, or smoke, Emery couldn't be sure. 
From somewhere to his left, there came a haze. It dissipated just as it approached the street adjacent to Nesme's home, but was intriguing nonetheless. All the street seemed to spiral out from Nesme's home, or what he had assumed was the leader's home, and were cobbled with smooth black stones, neatly organized and cemented together with gray. Green phosphorescent lanterns and lamps dotted the sides of the streets, and at the moment quite a few sibs had, had turned to get a better look at Emery. He continued on, led further to a squat building made of gray and white stone, with three floors and a variety of windows facing out into the main road. It had a sign above the door which read, The Toadstool. The sib to his left gestured ahead. There you go, your friend's in there, and Miss Gray is up the stairs, but do take care not to disturb her, she's sleepy. And with a deep breath, Emery Roy walked toward the inn, every step closer to Cora Gray. Thank you for listening to AlderPod. For more information, some background about writing and my daily blog, you can go visit aldersgatecycle.com or wordpress.aldersgatecycle.com. Any kinds of comments or suggestions are always appreciated. Once again, thanks for listening and have a good one.